This is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. This week, what we eat and the way we eat it, and who gets to eat. Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Marin McKenna is the author. In agriculture, we mostly give these antibiotics to animals that are not sick. All of it underlines the risk of using antibiotics, which is that we're always provoking resistance, but not causing the benefit of curing an infection. Also, I speak with Andy Fisher, author of Big Hunger, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups. Charity comes from the word caritas, mm -hmm. which me used to mean, which does mean uh, showing love for God by showing love to one's neighbor or oneself. That has transitioned to kind of an almsgiving perspective in which we're just providing material aid to, to people. It's time for Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net. Stay with us. Pacifica Radio Network, the Public Radio Exchange, PRX, and from the studios of KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schott. I have a big show today, a big show with big titles. My first guest is Marin McKenna, author of Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. What happens is we give these antibiotics to animals in their feed and water. The antibiotics go into their guts. They affect the bacteria already resident in the, the guts of animals, that their gut microbiome, which they have just as we have. And then they exit the animal, either in their manure when they're alive, which goes onto the farm environment and then washes away in groundwater, surface water, blows away on the wind, leaves on the feet of animals, leaves on the skin and clothes of farm workers, or gets onto the meat that animals become when we kill them and disassemble them at slaughter. So either through the environment or through meat itself, those antibiotic-resistant bacteria that were created in the animal's guts are moving out into the wider world and eventually reach us and cause drug-resistant infections. In the second half of the show, I will speak with Andy Fisher, author of Big Hunger, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups. There's 61,000 food pantries around the country. They're serving $5 billion worth of food. It's a very substantial amount. It is by no means, however, a replacement for the SNAP program, uh, which currently um, provides $65 billion worth of food uh, to, to low-income Americans. So, you know, there, there's orders of magnitude uh, in which charity cannot replace, you know, the, the publicly assured rate to food. Big chicken big hunger. I'm Big John Chuck, and this is Big Progressive Spirit, a big show. We begin with Maren McKenna. She is a journalist who has reported from epidemics and disasters and farms and food production sites on most of the continents, including a field hospital in New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina, a Thai village erased by the Indian Ocean tsunami, a bird testing unit on the front lines of West Nile virus, an Arctic graveyard of the victims of the 1918 flu, an AIDS treatment center in Yunnan, a polio eradication team in India, breweries in France, a matrix for chickens in the Netherlands, and the Midwestern farms devastated by the 2015 epidemic of avian flu. She writes about science and food for National Geographic and for magazines and websites in the United States and Europe, including the New York Times Magazine, NPR, Newsweek, Vice, 538, Wired, Scientific American, Slate, Modern Farmer, Nature, The Atlantic, and The Guardian. She is the author of the award-winning books Superbug and Beating Back the Devil on the Front Lines with the Disease Detectives of the Epidemic Intelligence Service. Her new book that we're going to talk about today is Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture 
and change the way the world eats. Via Skype from Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Maren McKenna, to Progressive Spirit. Thank you for having me. All right, Big Chicken and Superbug. They sound like uh, dystopian titles for movies. <laughs> Unfortunately, true. So both these, I guess these are um, sort of my dark uh, duology. Superbug is the story of the emergence of antibiotic resistance worldwide and how close we are to losing the antibiotic miracle told through sort of the biography of one organism, which was MRSA or drug resistant staff and Big Chicken, my new book, which has been out, uh, I think, three weeks as we speak. It is the kind of a follow up story. It's how we came to misuse antibiotics in agriculture, how we came to give antibiotics routinely to almost every meat animal on the planet and how we discovered that was a terrible idea. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go there and talk about that. But first, go, give us some background. Uh, the first antibiotic was was penicillin, which is really, when we don't think about it, because it's so common, but it's really fairly recent. Can it you give is. Us, can and you give us a little bit of history on uh, how well we got to use antibiotics? Sure. I mean, it's it's so smart that you say how recent this is, because that's true. I think we don't realize, all of us, because we were all born within the antibiotic era. We don't realize how recent uh, an arrival they are. But here's the super quick pocket history. Bacteriologist Alexander Fleming, who is a native of Scotland, is working at St. Mary's Hospital in London in 1928. And because it's 1928, there's no air conditioning. And so he leaves the window open in his laboratory and something blows in the window onto the plates, the culture plates of staph bacteria that he is studying. And because it's 1928, they have no plastic. So he has to reuse those glass plates at some point. So a few weeks later, he comes back. He goes to wash them all off. And he notices that on the plates of staph, there are little dead zones where something has killed the staph bacteria. And in the center of each dead zone is a tiny speck of blue-green mold. That mold is the mold penicillium. And from it, he gets the first natural antibiotic, penicillin. Now, penicillin, for a variety of complicated reasons, doesn't really reach the market until about 1944. It's used on the battlefields of World War II in 1944 and 1945, and hundreds of thousands of soldiers come back from the, the war who would not otherwise have made it because of penicillin. And so after the war is over, other kind of companies that would have been making patent medicines decide they too are going to make antibiotics, and we get from them the foundational drugs of the antibiotic era, ones we're still using today. First there's penicillin, then streptomycin, chloramphenicol, and then the tetracycline drugs. And it's the tetracycline drugs that actually start the agricultural side of the story. Because one of the manufacturers of the first tetracycline drug decides it's not enough of a market to use it in humans. They, they are going to try giving it to animals as well. That's the that's the story. There it wasn't necessarily a need, but not enough of a market. So what uh, we've also come to the point in which, obviously, in in these antibiotics, great resistance because of evolution. Uh, so where are in fact uh, we're at a pretty scary point. Am I right from reading your book that we have become to a point where uh, the resistance is moving faster than uh, antibiotics themselves? That's absolutely right. So from those very first antibiotics in the 1940s, bacteria adapt. They, they protect themselves against the antibiotic. And we should have expected that because what antibiotics are, as Fleming's story tells us, is they are compounds that bacteria made to compete against each other, to kill each other in competition for living space and food. And when we took those natural compounds into the laboratory and we made synthetic versions of them and improved them, we should have expected that bacteria would defend themselves against our compounds the way they defended themselves against natural compounds. And those defenses are what constitutes antibiotic resistance. They're bacteria changing their shape, changing the structure of their external membranes, changing uh, places where the antibiotic compounds can latch on all to defend themselves. So the first antibiotics come out, bacteria become resistant to them. We develop newer antibiotics, bacteria become resistant in turn. So we're locked in this lethal game of leapfrog. And meanwhile, as, as a sort of a side effect of that game of leapfrog of bacteria defending themselves, disease bacteria become more and more resistant. So now at the moment, it's estimated that worldwide, 700,000 people 
die every year from drug-resistant infections. In the United States, 23,000 people die, and another 2 million people are sick enough with drug-resistant infections to go to the doctor or be hospitalized. And that game of leapfrog is very dire because we are close to running out of antibiotics, to having the next drug to put in front of the always leaping forward bugs, because manufacturers think that antibiotics lose their power so rapidly that they're really not a good investment to make. And all of that brings us to this point where medicine has and, and civil society have sat up and said, wow, the antibiotics we have are precious. We need to protect their action. We need to be conservative in how we use them. And into that scenario of being conservative, of protecting the action of antibiotics, sales, agriculture, which has been overusing antibiotics by the ton, mostly for animals that are not sick since the 1940s. And that's where we want to go to now. Uh, Big Chicken is about the use of antibiotics with animals to fatten them and protect them from disease in uh, on factory farms. My guest is Marin McKenna. She's the author of Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Uh, you're right. The biggest source of resistance is because of how we use these antibiotics in agriculture. Uh, and you said 80% of the antibiotics in the United States go to farm animals. So let's talk about these, uh, what, CAFOs, right? Confined animal feeding operations. Could you provide a background of the use of antibiotics with, with the food we eat, with, with chickens, for example? Sure. So I think because of your your listenership, people are going to be familiar with the idea that we raise meat animals for the most part in very large, concentrated, industrial scale, high throughput operations, you know, tens of thousands of birds in a barn, which is called a shed, you know, ten thousands of, of cattle in feedlots at a time. All of that is made possible by the routine use of antibiotics. And as I said, this goes back to the beginning of the antibiotic era, to a scientist working at one of the first antibiotic manufacturers, a place called Letterly Laboratories outside New York City. The scientist is named Thomas Jukes. He tries out feeding the manufacturing waste of making chlorotetracycline, the first tetracycline drug, to batches of chicks. He's doing this because the, the food system has been kind of dismantled by the destruction of World War II, and there's a great urgency for making meat more cheaply to keep the whole infrastructure from crashing around them. So all of the, the livestock production system is looking for cheap feed and cheap supplements to, to um, in, increase the nutritional value of that feed. And so Jukes is looking for a supplement, and he gives to his experimental chicks all kinds of things that would increase the nutritional value of the grain they're eating, from cod liver oil to, to crystalline vitamins. And to, to one batch, he gives the dried leftovers of the growth medium that chlorotetracycline was brewed in, kind of like brewing beer is the closest you can get to, to what the, the process is like. And those chicks that get the manufacturing leftovers gain the most weight. And what he figures out pretty quickly is that in those manufacturing leftovers, that dried growth medium, are tiny doses of the antibiotic itself that haven't been strained out. And he standardizes that at like 10 grams of drug per ton of feed. Just that tiny amount allows birds, first birds and then other meat animals, either to get to their slaughter mate weight more quickly or to reach their slaughter weight at the same time as normal but using less feed. Okay, so it's uh, successful with chickens in uh, making them grow bigger, and it's also uh, successful in terms of, of uh, preventing disease within these factory farms. Right. It doesn't take very long, less than 10 years, before uh, researchers and also livestock production companies realize that if a little is good, then a little more is better. Now, to be clear, we are not talking about the kind of doses that would cure an infection. That's the most important thing here, because in humans... We only use antibiotics to cure infections. And in agriculture, we mostly give these antibiotics to animals that are not sick. If we were only giving them to animals that were sick, I would have no concern. I would not complain about it. But all of this uh, vast amount of antibiotic that we use, first for growth promotion, as that process was called, and second to protect animals from catching diseases from each other in the crowded conditions of barns and feedlots, all of it 
underlines the risk of using antibiotics, which is that we're always provoking resistance, but not causing the benefit of curing an infection. And so, yeah, well, so the, what's, the, uh, what's the risk then to play devil's advocate? So what's so wrong about giving our chickens antibiotics to make them big and fat and juicy? So this is the question that the scientists asked back in the 40s and 50s when they came up with this. They, everyone knew right from the start, right from the, the very first antibiotic penicillin, that as soon as you used an antibiotic, bacteria began to adapt. And they adapted by defending themselves, and that was antibiotic resistance. And, and Alexander Fleming, in fact, warned about this on the day that he got the Nobel Prize in medicine that we had to conserve antibiotics power. So using antibiotics has always been a balance between the risk of provoking resistance, the benefit of achieving a cure. But in when they first gave these antibiotics to animals, knowing that they were not curing anything, the first scientists to do this asked themselves, what, would the, what, what are the downsides? What would the risk be? And in their early papers, which I went back and retrieved, they assumed that resistant bacteria are going to arise in the systems of animals, but they also assumed that the bacteria are going to stay in the animals. And that's where they were wrong. Because what happens is we give these antibiotics to animals in their feed and water. The antibiotics go into their guts. They affect the bacteria already resident in the, the guts of animals, the, their gut microbiome, which they have just as we have. And then they exit the animal, either in their manure when they're alive, which goes onto the farm environment and then washes away in groundwater, surface water, blows away on the wind, leaves on the feet of animals, leaves on the skin and clothes of farm workers, or gets onto the meat that animals become when we kill them and disassemble them at slaughter. So either through the environment or through meat itself, those antibiotic resistant bacteria that were created in the animal's guts are moving out into the wider world and eventually reach us and cause drug resistant infections. So uh, how much has, has this happened then, uh, drug-resistant infections in humans because of this? What it's, are the, what so, are the, st the so, stats on that, I guess I'm asking? Right. So, so the, the stats are both are imprecise but reliable enough that we know it's a really big problem. And here are some examples. Within just a couple of years of antibiotics starting to be used in this manner, people started to notice outbreaks of drug-resistant foodborne illness. This was a thing that had never been seen before. So from the first outbreaks, which were actually perceived in England of like a dozen or two dozen or 50 people sick over a wide range, all of whom could, whose meals could be traced back to a single slaughterhouse, to now in the United States, outbreaks that, that take in hundreds or thousands of people at a time with drug-resistant salmonella and campylobacter and E. coli, there's a toll of a direct result of people eating meat contaminated with antibiotic-resistant bacteria. But because those bacteria can also sort of flow through the environment and can release their resistance DNA that is taken up by other bacteria, there also are much longer, thinner trails of evidence that can link farm antibiotic use to things like the hundreds of thousands of urinary tract infections in the country each year, mm. to the kind of infections that occur after um, in, in hospitals and operations where things that started out in the world outside the hospital have moved into the hospital. My worst example is that in 2015, researchers working in China identified a new superbug, which goes by the acronym MCR. And it's, it's an extremely concerning superbug because it's kind of at the end of that game of leapfrog. It's resistant to the very last antibiotic that we have. They found it simultaneously in pigs, in retail pork and in patients in the hospital. And that bug, MCR, that highly, highly resistant bug, has now been found in more than 30 countries. It has moved across the world as though borders were irrelevant. And it's also causing illness in people in the United States. Now, obviously, those people in the United States had no direct connection with the pigs in China to whom this was originally given. But that's how far and how fast a super bug can move once it gets started. And we are all interconnected. So we just really unleashed uh, a phenomenon that we can barely even track in some it's respects. True. And in some ways, we don't even really work very hard on tracking it. I mean, everyone I've spoken to says that the minimum that we need to do is to vastly improve our surveillance systems. Now, some of them are better and worse in different parts of the world. For instance, Europe went toward 
much stricter control of farm antibiotics, all antibiotics, in fact, more than 10 years ago, and Scandinavia before them. And so all of those countries, which, you know, not coincidentally have single-payer health systems with, with much more record-keeping, because they don't have the patchwork retail healthcare system that we have here in the U.S., they keep track of both resistance in people and resistance occurring in animals. They have access to records that we just don't have here. Maren McKenna, my guest, she's uh, the author of Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. So now we've become uh, sensitive to this in many respects. You uh, have, you know, purposely farms that are uh, non-antibiotic, you know, free-range chickens, for example. What uh, is the relationship of that movement uh, on, uh, on Big Chicken? So some really interesting things are, are happening right now, and that's actually why I wanted to write this book, because in my previous book, Superbug, that's a pretty dark story. You know, there's a lot of dead mm. children in that book. There's a lot of people really suffering. And I wasn't sure I wanted to write another book that was just about, oh, here we go down a dark road again. But in fact, there are some bright spots in this story. It's not solved. There's still a lot of challenges, but there are things that I think could give us hope. One is that our federal government in the United States at last has moved to exert some control over farm antibiotic use. And that began just in January of this year. Another is that big companies have companies that previously would have bred only very conventional chicken with, with the use of antibiotics and with very tight housing and no outdoor access and so forth. They have started to change to, to turn against antibiotics. There's a big consumer movement that was started by hospital systems and school systems and took in parents and chefs and farmers that have that is insisting on antibiotic-free chicken. And all of that, I believe, opens up the market again so that the kind of small producers you're talking about, the people who raise free-range chicken who are fully pasture-based, of which there's a big movement here in Georgia, the home of conventional chicken, because our climate is really friendly to pastured chicken as well. So now small and medium-sized farms that could never compete just when protein was so cheap, they can compete on animal welfare and on being antibiotic-free, and they can come back into the market in a way that it was closed to them before. So what about the scale? I mean, again, devil's advocate to push back. Uh, Nine billion chickens, right, in the in the United States uh, are, are, I guess we could almost say manufactured. It's hard to say raised anymore. But anyway, that scale of feeding people, all the fast food restaurants, uh, how would we be able to, now that we've opened up Pandora's box, close it again uh, in an well, age of feeding the masses? You know, it's really, it's not easy, but but again, I think there are some bright spots. You know, among the big companies, the flag was really flown for antibiotic-free raising by Purdue, which is the fourth largest chicken company in the country. And in 2014, it's their chairman stood up at a press conference he called and said, I'm here to say my, my company is going antibiotic-free. In fact, at that point, they substantially already were. And he made the rest of his industry pretty annoyed at him. But now they're falling behind him. So that, you know, after Purdue came Tyson and Costco and Walmart and Cargill and McDonald's and Chick-fil-A and all of these companies that we think of as very mass companies are have moved away from routine antibiotic use. And, and the, the beauty of that is, that, is precisely that they're not the small, beautiful, green, pastured farms, the aspirational farms. They are the companies that produce protein for the masses. And if they can do it, then they can provide a model for the rest of the industry and for the industry and the rest of the world to, 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 move, to show that even if we're going to intensively in a high-throughput manner produce protein for the coming 9 billion, as people say, we don't have to use antibiotics to do it. My guest, Marin McKenna, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. So at the end of the day, um, would we need to eat much differently? Should we eat much differently? What can the consumer watch out for? I, you know, my ask for people is, is please, if, they're, if they eat meat, when they go to buy meat, please buy antibiotic-free. Some people ask me, is it enough to, to buy organic? And the answer is not necessarily. Organic is fantastic. But in chicken, for instance, in the United States, the organic standard starts on day two of the chicken's life. So that chicken could have been given antibiotics in the shell by injection or in its first day of life and had its the bacteria in its gut disrupted and turned toward resistance as a result. If we support 
antibiotic-free raising, which is no antibiotics ever or raised without antibiotics on the label, I really believe it will move this movement further forward and it will reduce the threat of antibiotic resistance that affects us and our families and people worldwide. Maren McKenna, thank you so much for being with me. Her book again, Big Chicken, uh, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Thank you for this book and thanks uh, for being with me today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Up next, Andy Fisher talks with me about his book, Big Hunger, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups. Stay with us. This is Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. I'm John Schuck. In the second half of the show, we take a turn toward hunger itself and how hunger has become big business. Andy Fisher is from Portland and is with me in the KBOO studio to talk about his book, Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Welcome, Andy, to Progressive Spirit. Thanks for having me. appreciate it. Hunger is big business, and uh, you worked in the anti-hunger field for a quarter of a century. What, what did you do there, and when did you first realize that uh, this focus on fighting hunger was, uh, uh, so to speak, misplaced? Sure. I, um, I got involved in the field uh, in graduate school um, and then started a, uh, the, na- the main national coalition uh, working on, on food access and local food systems. So it's called the Community Food Security Coalition. We're a national alliance of about 300 organizations. Did a lot of work in the farm bill, a lot of work in, in really trying to build the, the food movement. And, you know, our organization was very much a kind of at the intersection of, of anti-hunger work, of public health and sustainable agriculture, trying to bring those forces together in a coherent uh, social movement. Um, you know, I really got an inkling that um, that the anti-hunger field, from my perspective, was, I won't say problematic, but was not what I quite desired when I started studying it in, in graduate school in UCLA in the wake of the Rodney King riots. And, and, and my work initially in this field was really about trying to encourage anti-hunger groups to become more um, engaged in prevention, more engaged in kind of a public health approach, more engaged in, in kind of cognizant of where their food is coming from. Um, and in supporting a food systems approach, uh, so that was that was my initial, uh, my initial kind of um, agenda, if you will. And then over time, I really realized uh, through being on, the, uh, through being part of the National Anti Hunger Organizations, which was the main kind of coalition of anti hunger groups around the country, I really became aware of the challenges uh, that the anti hunger community faced and in terms of its relationships with corporate America, in terms of not embracing uh, a progressive agenda, and also its, its alliances with big agriculture. For example, I worked on a number of different farm bills and tried to engage the anti-hunger community in a progressive alliance around um, sustainable agriculture on a food systems perspective. This was about 10 years ago. And found a lot of resistance because they were more in bed with big commodity groups. And that's where the power lay for them in terms of getting their their agenda passed in, in that farm bill. And you, you mentioned in the book, and I, I, I kind of drafted this as kind of the main point for me, was that hunger is really the wrong focus. It's really about poverty. Right. Hunger is a symptom, right? Yeah. Hunger is a symptom of, of, of poverty. Nobody wakes up hungry without other things having gone wrong in their lives. So, you know, hunger, again, is, you know, it, it's, it's a downstream cause of not having enough money to buy food. Um, and where does that come from? That comes from lots of other societal factors, poor education system, comes from racism, sexism, misogyny, it comes from a whole variety of, uh, of larger societal factors that we are ignoring when we just deal with hunger, when we just treat hunger as, as a social problem, when we just give people uh, a bag of food or even food stamps 
it, it deals with today's hunger, but it doesn't deal with tomorrow's. It just perpetuates and maintains the problem without really addressing the root causes. I'm not sure I'm getting his name pronounced right, but I think it was Dom Helder Kamara who said, uh, I feed people, they call me a saint. I ask why they're hungry, they call me a communist. Right. That's a great, yeah, that's a great quote. And, uh, and, and that's really uh, kind of the bottom line uh, of all of this, um, because hunger is, as you mentioned in your book, uh, attractive <laughs> for people, whether regardless of their uh, charity affiliation or on the right or the left, everybody feeds people. Exactly. Hunger is, you know, is, is no, in, in, in today, in America of today, um, you know, there's this concept of the deserving poor and the undeserving yeah. poor. Um, and this comes, this goes back to our Calvinist heritage, That's our, what, yeah. our puritanical heritage, in which back in the 1600s, if if people were being lazy or not working as hard as they as they should be, they would get whipped or they get run out of town. There's a real attitude of that um, that if you did not want to work, that you were considered the undeserving poor and you were punished. You did not deserve to eat. Uh, we don't whip people. We don't run them out of town for not for not working nowadays. But we do deny them the trappings of middle class life. Um, and so there is this concept of the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And the undeserving poor are those who are can, who are deemed to be poor by their own failings. Perhaps they're considered to be lazy or immoral or shiftless or made some wrong decisions along the lines. Um, the deserving poor are those who are poor because of no fault of their own. You know, perhaps children are the ultimate example of that. Uh, the elderly are, are also kind of fit into that category. And so those organizations that donate to, uh, in fact, you t- I talked in the, in the book about uh, hunger organizations themselves needing to kind of make this deal with the devil and capitalize uh, with feeding children, knowing that they're, they're playing along to get the donations. Exactly. Yeah. So what, so what happened, to, just to follow this narrative, so what happened in the 1960s? Yeah was that you know there was a lot of a uh, lot of protests a lot of energy around social justice around reducing poverty uh there's a gentleman named nick cotts uh, was a journalist at the time he chronicled the fact that in 1967 a group of bipartisan uh, advocates came together and they agreed that if they wanted to address poverty the best way to do it was to address hunger you know again in this country nobody believes that anyone people people may believe that folks are deserve to be poor but they don't deserve to be hungry generally everyone believes that you know it, that everyone has the right to eat so they figured that you know that focusing on hunger was the lowest common denominator in american politics across partisan lines across a society Everybody pretty much agrees that, you know, people have the right to eat. Um, and that has con- and so that has continued. And you see anti-hunger groups focusing less and less on poverty. And but just by their very nature, they're focusing on hunger because it's a much more uh, easier. It's a much more downhill path to go. What's happened in the past 20 years or so is that groups have doubled down on that bet. Um, they've said, well, you know, hunger doesn't isn't quite as politically attractive as it used to be. Let's focus on childhood hunger. Um, let's focus on, on kids, you know, and there, there's legitimate reasons to do so. I don't, I don't mean to poo-poo this at all. You know, there are some very serious biomedical challenges and very serious biomedical problems that children have when they're hungry in terms of brain development and, and physiological development. Those are very real and very serious, uh, in ter- and also in terms of their educational attainment. Uh, you know, there's lots of studies that show that kids don't learn well when they're hungry. Nonetheless, you know, there's, you know, if you go on pretty much every food bank website in this country, you'll see smiling children or or not smiling children on the website. There's been a real focus on children because the money comes in with children, because it it brings in the donations or foundations that specifically focus on kids. It is, again, it's kind of that politically downhill route that's easier to focus on children than it is to focus on the undeserving poor and the adults. But when we do that, we're selling everybody else down the river. You know, we're saying if we're going to focus on children, then we're by omission. What about their parents? Everybody else. Yeah, yeah, what about their parents? Big Hunger is the name of the book, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Uh, Andy Fisher uh, in the studio with me to talk about this book. And uh, getting back to religion just a second, I mean, part of this is the morality aspect of it. I mean, how many people quote Jesus, politicians all the time, well, the poor will always be with us, misquote him. But that general idea of um, the morality behind it uh, really drives a lot of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are 61,000 food, ban- food pantries and soup kitchens in this country. Uh, two-thirds of those are affiliated with the, with the house of worship. 
Uh, so it's very much, the anti-hunger work is very much in the faith tradition, especially in the Christian tradition. But what we see is, is you know, what we've seen, I don't want to say it's a perversion, but we've seen a, an evolution of the way we, we think about, about charity. It used to, you know, it, charity comes from the word caritas, mm-hmm. which me, used to mean, which does mean uh, showing love for God by showing love to one's neighbor or oneself. That has transitioned to a kind of an almsgiving perspective in which we're just providing material aid to, to people. Um, in the Jewish tradition and, 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 you know, somewhat in the Muslim tradition as well, uh, charity is not seen in that way, but it's seen as an act of righteousness. It's seen as an act of social justice. Uh, so the, the, the philosophy behind charity that, uh, that the 12th century Sephardic philosopher Maimonides proposed and talked about back then was about anonymous charity, was about helping people get on their feet without the, without the recipient knowing, knowing who the donor is. And that's ra- I think that's radically different from nowadays when you see the plaque on the wall of the food bank or the plaque on the wall of the hospital talking about you know, the rich person who gave the money to build that building. So the government really has uh, kind of given over, hasn't it, to faith groups, charity organizations, uh, the work of making laws uh, and uh, having a police, a city that deals uh, with justice on, in terms of economic justice. Yeah, I mean, there's been, you know, our safety net has been shredded. Mm-hmm. Um, the food stamp program is no longer what it used to be. There's, you know, the um, welfare, welfare reform eliminated welfare as an entitlement. So what has been happening over the past 30 years or 40 years, kind of with the growth of neoliberal philosophies, is a devolution of that of that social justice of that social good from the government onto onto the private sector onto charities. Uh, so charities have increasingly taken on more and more of a role in being the safety net under the safety net. Um, and like I said, you know, there's 61,000 food pantries around the country. They're serving five billion dollars worth of food. It's a very substantial amount. It is by no means, however, a replacement for the SNAP program, uh, which currently. Um, provide $65 billion worth of food uh, to, to low-income Americans. So, you know, there, there's orders of magnitude uh, in which charity cannot replace, you know, the, the publicly assured right to food. Um, however, uh, I think you, what you see increasingly is the right wing trying to push uh, charity in that direction and trying to devolve um, trying to devolve the, the public responsibility onto the private sector. And it gets more sinister than that when we bring in the corporations. Uh, take some time with this. Uh, maybe to explain it this way, what's the difference between Ben and & Jerry's and Walmart and, say, Target in terms of corporate philanthropy? I'll talk about Walmart. Okay. Uh, you know, Walmart has a big PR problem. Walmart is uh, widely seen as taking the low road toward profitability. It treats its workers very poorly. It doesn't pay them very well. It doesn't give them full-time schedules. It's very stingy with their benefit. It, it uh, opposes unionization at every step of the way. Um, because of that and because of its environmental harm that it's caused, Walmart has been kept out of many um, many major metropolitan areas, New York, Boston, Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. As a result, Walmart's lost 80 to $100 billion worth of business. Um, what, 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 what has Walmart done in response? It's amped up its, its philanthropy. In 2010, it made a commitment of over $2 billion worth of food and um, cash to anti-hunger groups to help build up its profile, to build up its reputation. It more than exceeded that. But what you see is then Walmart is then giving money to food banks and giving to money to organizations to promote the food stamp program. Um, and at the same time, it, it uses those programs as a way to pay its work, to, as a way to help its workers make ends meet without paying them a fair wage. Walmart also redeems about 18% of the food stamp, uh, the, amount, the number of food stamps redeemed in this, in this country. So it's, you know, redeeming tens of billion, uh, between 10 to $20 billion worth of, of food stamps uh, like every year. Kind like a company year. store almost. Right. Well, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 not paying its worker, it's not paying its workers enough. They're having to go to get food stamps. Then those workers, the return in, in yeah. cash that money there. Not in terms, and also it gets lots of positive media and public uh, attention as well as it boosts its stock, its stock prices. I mean, so it's, Walmart's a, it's a been, yeah, big marketing ext- strategy. Yeah, Walmart's been extremely strategic about it. And there's, mm-hmm. been, there's actually been complaints by labor unions that Walmart's philanthropy is not really philanthropy. It's really strategic strategic marketing. And uh, the philanthropy of these corporations toward hunger, including Walmart, is not necessarily towards advocacy groups who want to change 
change laws about poverty. It's a, to charity groups, right? Right, right exactly. Absolutely. It, 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 by and large, it started out giving its, it, its money in the anti-hunger world to food to food banks. It's changed. You know, to its credit, Walmart has evolved a little bit, and its philanthropy has moved more towards healthy eating and nutrition education, and a little bit more towards food system activity. Uh, but it, it is not funding the UFCW. It is not funding. You know, it is not funding campaigns to increase the minimum wage. Uh, in fact, it, it, it states in its uh, donor agreements that organizations cannot work to oppose Walmart's interests. Yeah, that was in there, that uh, a lot of paperwork in order to get a grant. There's a lot there. There's, there's a lot of requirements in terms of communications and what they, what yeah. they encourage you to do in terms of, especially like giving Walmart Foundation an award for being a good corporate citizen. It goes far beyond. I, I ran, I've run a, you know, anti-hunger, I've run na- nonprofit organizations for about 20 years, and I've never seen that level of communication from, from any funder. And uh, there was a, a, a scene in there in your book, uh, Big Hunger is the name of the book, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Uh, Andy Fisher is the author and my guest uh, about uh, Walmart just doing this press conference and kind of the politicians kind of deferring to, to Walmart about its great generosity. And That's where the, you know, that's where the juice is. Yeah. It's not in Congress anymore. It's in with Walmart. They've got, you know, more money than God. That's the big story right there, too. Um, so... Okay, some places uh, are changing. You write about the Oregon Food Bank. Yes. Tell me about the, yeah, what's happening you know, there. Yeah, you know, to be fair, the anti-hunger field really in the food banking community is, very, is changing very rapidly. Uh-huh. Uh, there's a lot of great positive changes that are happening. A lot of food banks are moving in a health, more in a health direction. Many are increasing the amount of produce that, that they're distributing. Some are actually not distributing soda anymore. Uh, Oregon Food Bank is one of them. Uh, Oregon Food Bank has taken on some really interesting activities. They're very active in rural food system development. They do workshops across the state to engage communities in identifying their assets to, and help them develop their solution, their own solutions to the problems in their community around food access and the like. Um, they also have advocated on the minimum wage and trying to increase the minimum minimum wage in the state and and are working on affordable housing there you know Oregon Food Bank is one of the most progressive food banks in the country they're they're very much trying to rethink how they do their 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 core work um, there are you know there's a growing field there's there's a conference that's gonna be happening in Tacoma uh, called closing the hunger gap in which 500 food bankers and others will be gathering and talking about their efforts to address racism, to change the way they evaluate success, to be, do, to be working on more sustainability and more health. Uh, so the field is, is very much changing and it, and it really needs support. It really, you know, that's partly why I wrote this book is to really try to help accelerate that change uh, towards a different vision that encompasses public health, that encompasses social justice and, and local economies. Is there an effort to, um, I'm thinking of the International Food Security Treaty. I don't know if you've heard of that. The idea to make uh, hunger illegal, uh, going through the UN and talking about uh-huh. the you know, the resolution like that is is uh, is is that something that uh, really needs to happen? That there, if there are hungry people in our country, heads should roll. You know, part part of the challenge in the U.S. is that um, the U.S. has never signed on to uh, an, an international covenant on human rights uh, that establishes food as a human right. Yeah. Uh, United States and there's a few other countries, I believe Australia might be another one of them. Um, so there is no legal accountability uh, for, for citizens to hold the government, there's no legal means for this, for citizens to hold the government accountable for failing to uh, provide for food security. It is not codified as a right. And as a result, what we've seen is that food security, which is this kind of term that addresses um, and measures behavior and experiences kind of related to hunger, but a little bit more scientific. Since it's being measured in, in 1995, the numbers are still the same. It's, it was 12% in 1995. It's 12.6% in, 19, in 2015. Numbers ebb and flow a little bit, but basically we haven't made any progress in 20 years. And that is, as you said, because, you know, there's no, there's, there's, it, it, it's subject to the political whims, essentially. Yeah, they're just not any teeth. In, there's no in teeth. The Absolutely, there's no te- there's no there's no mouth. <laughs> <laughs> no mouth. So, uh, just a final question then. I'm speaking with An- Andy Fisher. Big hunger. Uh, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups. Where, where do we get the teeth? Where do we get the teeth? We organize. 
You yeah. know, there's 40 odd million people who receive food stamps. There's 40 odd million people who are go to food pantries. There's 61,000 uh, food pantries across the country, 200 food banks, tens of millions of donors and volunteers in the, in the anti-hunger field. If those folks were mobilized and linked to kind of a more progressive approach, we would have a vastly different country than we have now. Andy Fisher, my guest, Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Uh, Pick up that book. Thank you for being with me today. Thank you, John. A few months ago, I interviewed John Teton about the International Food Security Treaty. And since I have some time, I'm going to play some of that interview about an intriguing idea, putting real teeth into ending hunger internationally. I'm speaking with John Teton. He's the director of the International Food Security Treaty. That website is www.treaty.org. We're talking about how his idea for the treaty came about. It was in response to the famine in Somalia in the early 90s. So my thought then was, well, this this, uh, famine that's obviously being caused by political uh, for political means in Somalia and oh, by the way there were similar pictures of people um, in the Balkan Wars at the time they were obviously being uh, malnourished in in prison there's a crime here there ha- this has to be a crime uh, when you cause severe injury to somebody that's a crime especially if it's a mortal injury so I started thinking well if it's a crime there's got to be a law against it so I looked around, I found this Universal Declaration, which was followed up in 1966 by a covenant in the, uh, put together in the UN called the International Covenant on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, which underscored the right to food and, uh, in fact, described it as fundamental. And it was the only human right that got that designation. But where was the movement to enforce that right with law? Uh, we've had no trouble coming up with laws against uh, murder, rape, armed robbery, double parking. Uh, and yet here was a very grievous harm that had a law. It was basically outlawing it, but it wasn't being enforced. So, uh, and I, I actually have three other careers going in it in addition to this volunteer work I do for the treaty, and I don't have never had the luxury of, of putting full time into it. But periodically, over the next several months, I kept looking. This is pre-internet, early 90s. And I couldn't find, I got information on dozens and dozens of anti-hunger groups. None of them seemed to be pressing to take this human right seriously by granting a protection of enforceable law. So while writing that, book, I just drafted in a few minutes the four basic, four or five basic principles that I thought could form a really effective law. And then I started to circulate it. John Teton is the director of the International Food Security Treaty Campaign and the president of the International Food Security Treaty. It's a law that, as you mentioned, you you drafted uh, back in 1993. It's only 700 words or so. Uh, What are the principles of this uh, food treaty? Yeah, the... uh the principles are even less. The actual draft treaty that was arrived at by conference um, between a whole bunch of people involved in this issue in the run-up to the 1996 World Food Summit, that whole treaty, which is a draft treaty, and it certainly will have some modifications as nations get around to negotiating its final form, that 700 words, the actual principles, which really spell out the whole idea, is just one long sentence. It distills down to four basic principles. The first is that signatory nations agree to guarantee minimum nutri- a minimal nutrition level for people within its borders who can't get access to it on their own. It's not about getting steak and ice cream sundaes to people. It's making sure nobody suffers malnutrition or starves. The second point is that nations would have to contribute to a World Food Reserve and Resource Center. Notice it's not, it's not just food giveaways. Those are a last resort. Anything that the international community can do, uh, for example, uh, assistance with uh, agricultural means or economic measures, 
to prevent um, to assist them in being able to meet that guarantee, that that would be like a the, what, what a fire department is to a community. Uh, a nation could turn to this World Food Reserve and Resource Center to get help if they can't meet that guarantee. Emergency help, I'm referring to. Mm-hmm. The third point is they agree to establish and enforce law against the use of hunger as a weapon. That's addressing the criminal aspect of it. And finally, they would need to agree to support UN food security enforcement actions if it's proven that uh, a nation is unable or unwilling to enforce the law on its own. I'm speaking with John Teton, the director of the International Food Security Treaty. So how can people get involved? Anybody who gets involved um, in that regard, and I hope everybody will, because this assistance can boil down to just four minutes of work. Everybody in this country, of course, we're going for all countries, but in the U.S., everyone has four elected representatives, a member of Congress, the House, two senators, and the president. So what I suggest is the minimum thing that somebody could do that's really cumulatively effective is to place calls to those four individuals and say, I want you to do everything in your power to uh, advance this uh, International Food Security Treaty. That's four minutes out of somebody's life, but uh, collectively that makes a big difference. It's a lot better than just clicking on a uh, preformed statement on a website, which a lot of groups do and encourage, but I've just seen over and over and over again that those get very little, carry very little weight in Congress. So, uh, but if somebody wishes to go further with it, and let's say they get a form letter back from their senator uh, dismissing this, I have to say I got a letter from uh, President Obama. Of course, I'm sure he had nothing to do with this. I saw a picture just recently of the office where people go through all the letters, and often I know these people are not very well they're just handling a million letters a second, and they don't really give them much thought. So I, I mentioned the treaty, described it, said why I hoped he would uh, get behind it, and I get a letter with his supposed signature, no doubt stamped, about climate change, which I never mentioned. A prior attempt to write to him got no response. So those things can be discouraging to people, and they should expect that they might happen. But overall, if you persist, you will find people who say, Oh, this is this is a no-brainer. This got this has got to be done. So again, it's it's a long haul process, and uh, but even if it's just that four minutes, that helps. John Teton, my guest, uh, he is the uh, president of the International Food Security Treaty. Uh, the uh, website is www.treaty.org, and it has uh, the, the, the treaty there as well as uh, its history and uh, other information about how people can get involved in this. John, thank you for this project, ambitious and yet and yet very hopeful. You, you've, you've made a believer out of me. So I appreciate, uh, appreciate you doing this work. Thanks so much, John. Really appreciate it. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net is the website. Progressive Spirit is heard on several radio stations across the country and every week via podcast. From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Shuck. Be well.